Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast, where we introduce you to a world of small to medium business acquisitions and mergers. We interview business owners, industry leaders, authors, mentors, and other influencers with the sole intent to share with you what it looks like to buy or sell a business. Let's get rolling. And now a moment for our sponsors. I want to highly recommend you get Acquisition Aficionado Magazine. Every month, Acquisition Aficionado Magazine brings you tactics for business buying and selling you won't find anywhere else. Learn firsthand from industry leaders who share their success stories, featuring in-depth interviews and stories from leading figures in the business acquisition industry. This multi-platform mobile magazine speaks to acquisition entrepreneurs wherever they are in the journey. And I want you to visit acquisitionaficionado.com today. I'm here with Kurt Mitchie. He's a business advisor with Candor Advisors. I'm glad to have you on the show today. Thank you for being on the show today, Kurt. Thanks, Ron. It's good to be here. We always start off with the origin story. I won't give you the standard old joke, but kind of tell us how you got on, got into this space. I know you have a varied background of everything from PE to entrepreneur to PE to now you're in an advisory role. But can you give us the details of kind of how that came about? Yeah, I would say at some level, I've been an advisor, client-facing advisor for three decades. I've been in, in finance and business advisory, financial advisory for all that time. For the past almost 15 years, I've been in what you would call the mergers and acquisitions business or advising founders on how to exit well. And at about 57 years old, just three and a half years ago, I'd gotten to the point where I no longer liked being a financial advisor. I was no longer a partner at a private equity firm for a variety of reasons, but I wanted to be in the M&A business. And so I launched Candor Advisors to be what at the time felt to me like a unique transaction advisory business with the idea that I was going to help people get to the right investment banker, get to the right M&A attorney prepare themselves for the things that would amplify the potential sales price in terms of their deal, and maybe more importantly, protect against the things that would hurt them when they sold. And it was purely going to be just that. And what happened very quickly is that we were overwhelmed with demand for what we did. And since I was already licensed to be not only an investment banker, but a general securities principal, Candor Advisors became boutique investment bank in addition to everything else awesome awesome now do you guys specialize in any particular industry or sector or are there businesses you don't touch yeah great question i would say that we are generalists what happens is that the market or our contacts pull us into subject matter expertise areas for instance I've done two large cannabis services transactions so not plant touching not growers but people that sold to growers those transactions have been a little over 100 million, a little over 200 million. And the irony or <laughs> poetry there, Ron, is that I'm 17 years sober and I haven't smoked weed for more than 30 years. So I know nothing about cannabis. I can barely identify it. So on the other end of the spectrum, we worked on a business that, that manufactured synthetically ultra pure nucleotides. And I know nothing about genomics and life science and told the entrepreneur that when her M&A attorney 
suggested she talk to me. I said, I don't even think I understand what you do. And she just started laughing. This PhD organic chemistry person said, look, I can teach you that. I need a deal guy. So we worked in a lot of areas and there are some that would have, it would appear that we have certain specialties, but frankly, I would say that our specialty is working with entrepreneurs who are willing to kind of develop a covenant with their advisor that says, if you do the following things, we will get you to the following place. So maybe a little more evolved entrepreneur, a little more receptive entrepreneur, but not a specific business sector. All my friends did it growing up, but I didn't know anything about it. But when I was in Oklahoma, constantly got cannabis deals put in front of me. It's like, look, I just don't know anything about the space. It's oversaturated there. At one point, I, I did. I joked with a guy who was trying to get me to buy into a dispensary, and he said, "You got to do this, man. It's the hot thing right now." I was like, "Yeah, it's so hot. I live remotely. I do here in California now, and I live there in Oklahoma. I always kind of like to be out by ourselves, away from everybody else." And so, our closest grocery store in Oklahoma was 17 miles away. So I had to drive 17 miles away to go to a super Walmart to buy groceries. But on the way, I passed seven dispensaries. I'm not at all shocked. I will tell you that we regulate cannabis in this country as if it's a schedule one narcotic, like it's heroin or oxycodone. And the reality is that, I mean, look, it's like wine. It's about that potent and frankly, maybe even less so depending on THC content. But the other thing too, is that we've done a horrible job of regulating licenses and Canada was a great example. They're federally legal, whereas we're kind of state by state. And 30 some states have some level of legalization, but what we did was not regulate the number of licenses well enough. And then the enforcement of both users and growers is unevenly handled. And so we've got a situation where we're heading in the direction of what happened in Canada, where they're now, so they have so much oversupply that they quite literally burn 25% of their crop per year because they can't sell it. It's a funny time. I mean, I think some of these entrepreneurs will be like the early kind of Miller Beer, Anheuser-Busch, Seagrams. I have met some massively talented entrepreneurs in the cannabis space. And then I met a lot of what in the cannabis space they call chads, which I would certainly be a chad. Somebody who is like wants to make money from cannabis, but knows nothing about it and comes right. to capital and a viewpoint. And that has hurt cannabis probably more than helped. That's what I kept telling them, like, look, I don't know enough about the industry. There's two things in a state like Oklahoma, where everybody that you would want to partner with that knows the industry was doing it before it was legal. So they still have the mentality of they'll cross lines that you don't want to cross. I have a friend right now who has a chance of facing federal charges. His business partner, he had, he swears he had no insight to it, but his business partner, when they had both a grow and a dispensary and when things were hot, he was shipping stuff to other states because he couldn't have enough buyers to buy his stuff up. And when things were like they had a bad crop and they had had more sales than they had crop to to deal with, he would go across the line and bring stuff back. And not okay at this point. So here he is, a real estate investor who just put money in it. And I liked the idea and thought he was going to make a bunch of money on this. Now he's talking to the DA and other people going, hey, I had no idea. And he goes, yeah, but you're on the license. It is unevenly regulated, unevenly enforced, and probably a larger problem than we can solve in, a, in an hour-long podcast. <laughs> Let's talk about the other industries you're working with. That can't be the only one. I know it was a fun sidetrack because it's hot in a lot of states. Here, I can't take my kids skating without having to smell it because it's recreational legal, so they can 
hang out outside and do it. So when I take my kids to the skate park, I have to tell them like, oh, that's just what they do. Just once you stay over here with me, I have a six-year-old, sorry, a seven, a 12-year-old who have no business being around it at this point in my own mind. Mine are all adults. So if they use it, they don't need to ask my permission anyway. And if I go to a cannabis conference and I happen to be in a text exchange with them, they'll say, bring home samples. And I'll say, I wouldn't know what to bring. <laughs> like, I have no idea. We've worked in automotive, fitness equipment. I mentioned the life science deal. We've worked with a few manufacturers contract and kind of in-house, we've worked with definitely with distribution businesses. We worked with a recycling business that was a, more of a managed services business. So they weren't actually hauling stuff. We recently did a food ingredients deal. We've done nearly a billion dollars worth of transactions in the last 18 or 19 months. And in several of those sold large private companies to public companies, U.S. and European. And I think kind of the through line is they're all founder-led businesses. We've yet to find that we're the right investment bank for a hired CEO who's taken a company to market. I think some of the kind of lower bulge bracket middle market firms are probably better at that. For me, I need to be able to connect with the founder and get them to the right outcome. And I need them to have an open enough mind that if the data leads us back to the idea that they won't get enough on a net after tax basis to endow their life the way the business does, that they'll explore other alternatives. Look, we find all the time that private equity people and investment bankers seem to really dislike ESOPs or seller finance transactions. And not being cynical here, I would say there seems to be an obvious reason that, you know, if you're the investment banker that leads somebody to an ESOP, you're not going to get a fee. But look, if that's the right outcome, my own viewpoint, and I'm not iliomastinary here, this isn't charitable activity. I need the money that we make, but it feels to me like there are enough well-run, solid private businesses that there will be plenty of activity for all of us to be engaged in. I had a couple of guys on here about ESOPs and I learned so much about them. I'm a big fan now. There's so much more to them than most people even know from tax advantages to just way companies are run differently once they're employee owned. It actually opened up my doors to, I got to interview the, uh, he's not the author, but the strategic trainer for the great game of business, the book called the great game of business. They're a lead strategic, one of the VPs and the lead of like strategic training, the guy that goes out and trains other corporations on that. He was on the show. And then I also had the CEO of EOS on here. Yeah, we, right here in our backyard, I'm in Carlsbad in essentially North San Diego County. University of San Diego has the Beister Institute. Bob Beister was the founder of SAIC, which is a, one of the largest private government contractors at the time. He transitioned ownership to his employees and uh, they endowed the Beister Institute at US, er, USD and uh, will they act as a consultant and will show people that like for the company and for the seller, there are pretty meaningful tax benefits. And that on a, if you compare it to the net after tax of getting one and a half or two turns more in multiples for a fully taxable sale. But you then look at, if legacy matters to you, how well companies performed when they're employee owned, it starts to be really compelling. So I think it's part of the reason we don't just call ourselves an investment bank, but a transaction advisor, because wherever the data takes us, we don't use hope as a strategy. If the data says that you can get 
14 million largely tax-free selling to an ESOP or 20 million fully taxable selling to a private equity firm with a bunch of structure. And the private equity firm may or may not keep some of your people and they definitely won't keep all of your culture intact. It's up to the business owner to decide which of those transactions work better for them. We're not the ultimate decider on that, but they should at least have that in front of them. They should have that option. It's awesome. You talked about seller finance, ESOPs, and then private equity. Do you do much with the like strategic buyers, like going out to the potential competitors or other people that would be a strategic acquisition? Sure. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's the job of any good investment banker to create competitive tension so that the seller is in position to get the highest price, the best terms, and the most control of their legacy. And we have a firmly held belief here from a collaborative standpoint that seller's price, buyer's terms, buyer's price, seller's terms, and every single deal point works that way in our mind. If the buyer is willing to meet our terms, but they want more structure. We go through each of the structure points and figure out which one adds, which one does not accomplish business risk transfer and which one does. And we look at the contingencies and the likelihood, which structure pieces are going to be passage of time and which things are unlikely to be in the control of the selling founder. And so when we kind of think about who we're selling to, I would say there's no monolith. It all kind of comes down to one of the first things we talk about in our six secrets to selling is the first one is determining your why. Like when you know what your why is in selling, like, look, if you want to retire, you want to spend more time with your family, if you've got another idea that you want to fund and work on, the buyer has to be matched up with your why. Right. I mean, if you want to sell for maximum cash up front right off into the sunset, either because you never want to go to the office or make a decision about HR or legal again, then a private equity firm is not going to be the right buyer because they're going to want you to stay involved for a while. And they're going to want you to be enticed by the second bite of the apple. On the other hand, if you're in your 40s and you think the business could be bigger, but it needs more distribution and it needs more professional management. Then taking some chips off the table in the first bite, de-risking a bit and building towards a next outcome with the right private equity or financial sponsor partner could be exactly the right why. You just got to nail your why first before we as an investment bank can help you get there. And we help our sellers get to their why. We dig in pretty deep. You mentioned your six secrets to selling a business. So I'm interested in yours. I, everybody I've met actually has their own like five, six, seven, but you have such a breadth of knowledge and history in this space. What were the common threads that lead you to the six secrets selling your business? Yeah, thanks, Ron. That's exactly how we came up with them. I read a lot, so I love alliteration. The fact that it's six secrets sounds cool, but it's really, look, so finding your why is number one. And then the second one is matching your buyer with your why, right? There is just no amount of financial analysis that is going to overcome a buyer who's wrong to match up with the why. The third one is professionalizing the financials. You need your financials to tell the true story of the transferable economics of your business. And I'm not talking about just painting yourself in the right light. I'm talking about making sure that the buyer who wants to look at your adjusted EBITDA or your annual run rate revenue understands the true picture of your business. And sure, in diligence, they're going to pick it apart, but it need, which is why you need it to be professionalized. Look, if it's in QuickBooks, it needs to be CPA reviewed. 
if it's never been audited and you're going to be a pretty big transaction, you probably need a sell side quality of earnings from a reputable CPA firm. If it's already audited, you're probably fine. But professional links in the financials is the third one. And then don't give up too much too soon. Most great selling founder entrepreneurs are great at selling. They are usually the lead kind of salesperson, customer service person. So when they get outreach from a buyer, in order to keep rapport, they want to get an NDA in place or don't even worry about an NDA and provide a whole bunch of information, some of which might be used against them when the IOI or LOI comes through. So don't give up too much too soon, which then leads to the fifth thing, which is don't try and do this yourself. I'm not saying you need to hire a business broker or an investment bank or go find a top flight M&A attorney right off the bat. But minimally, at least go back to your Vistage group or to your CPA or to another entrepreneur who's been through this before and say, what are my risk factors here? And then the sixth is not intuitive, but that is the number one deal killer in our view and our observation is seller expectations, right? So don't argue with the market. If the market says that a business of your size and your growth rate and your industry trades at four times adjusted EBITDA, don't argue with the market. Just accept that that's where it is. If you don't want that number, you don't like that number, come up with an alternative path or find a way to grow the business to the point where at that multiple of EBITDA, which might actually rise as you grow the business, you can live with the sale. But you know, that's how we came to the six years. Those are the things that we see both optimize and penalize businesses. So I think this is a people business and I love, there's a joke I always like to tell people is like, what's the number one cause of divorce? Well, the number one cause of divorce is marriage because you can't get divorced unless you're married, right? So the number two cause of divorce is unmet expectations. And both sides go into this relationship with some expectation that have non-communicated or not communicated well with the other. That's the yeah. same way with all these business deals. Both sides walked into this transaction with some set of expectations that they were going to get at this. And... <clears throat> Very often, the reason that fails is unmet expectations. The seller expected right. certain things. The buyer expected that they'd be okay. A lot of times the buyer expected they would, what they were going to do next and everything was really motivated until it was time to come down and sign that thing and walk away. And they were like, oh my yeah. God, what am I going to do next? Their identity's tied to it. But it's always going to be, it's a people business. So what's funny is we're working on a book right now. I've got a collaborative with a lot of the guests from the show and everything called Not Two Sides. And it's about negotiating that's the title of the book. The title will be called Not Two Sides, but it's a, just basically about negotiating any type of business deal that it's not you versus them. It's not an us versus them. It's a collaborative. You both have expectations. And on the sooner you can put those on the table and figure out what the other person's expectations and needs are. Like there's expectations, there's wants, and there's needs. And there's some people that a lot of people don't realize that stuff's different, right? Yeah, that's a fantastic insight. Look, when I say that ideally you're working collaboratively with your buyer to get to the right answer, it doesn't mean that we're all holding hands singing kumbaya. Uh, it does mean that like, look, there's a reason that uh, transactions advisors need to be in the mix, right? The corporate development person at a public company or the buy side investment banker working with the sell side investment banker. LeBron doesn't sit down with Jeannie Buss and work out his contract. His agent goes in there with the general manager and says, okay, this is what LeBron adds to the team. Here's the expectation. Here's his market value. And then they start chopping it up, right? And sometimes somebody needs the designated a-hole in there to kind of say, no, we're not going to sell for that number, especially 
when the buyer comes in with an unsolicited offer to the seller who has been thinking about selling and doesn't understand that, like, look, it, the buyer of your business is a full-time predator and you as a seller are part-time prey. You need to armor up. The junior person in a private equity firm, somebody who doesn't even have a VP title yet, has worked on more deals this year than you, the seller who's built this business over the last 35 years, will work on in your life. They know so much more than you that you just need to balance things out. And once you balance things out, then you get to that collaborative outcome where you get to the right valuation, you get to the right structure, you match up with your wine, and you get the right deal, right? Yep. So I used to, many years ago, before I gained all this weight and those car wrecks stuff, I used to fight full contact MMA, right? So I, I hold multiple black belts in different styles. And anyway, one of my favorite analogies in that realm is like, look, there's just certain people I would never walk into the ring with. The same goes in the realm with the business owners. You don't want to crawl in the ring, especially an investor. Somebody who has an M&A attorney or investment bank and you don't have anybody in your corner, it's a really bad idea. If you wouldn't jump up and go like, crawl into the UFC ring with one of those trained fighters and put on a pair of gloves and go at it with him because you just don't have the skill set for that, you don't know what you're doing in that ring. Same thing goes, you don't want you doing in that ring of that, of that office sitting across from that boardroom table with four people who have spent 10,000 hours training those skills, building yeah. those muscles. And I don't get it. I've had small business owners reach out to me because I, I always tell everybody what I'm looking for on the show. I always tell people I'm looking for e-commerce content sites. I give them my whole list a lot of times on the show, newsletters, podcasts, that type of stuff. So I'll have people reach out to me and I was like, cool, who's helping you out on your side? And they're like, well, do I need that? I said, well, be honest with you, before we get this done, I'm probably going to have an attorney look at my side. I would suggest you have somebody work on your side. And you don't have to have it right now. We can look at it. The reason I asked you is I need to know what to expect. If you tell me you have an advisor or a broker or somebody helping you on your side, I can expect clean financials. I can expect good sets of reports and stuff. I need traffic and things we need for e-commerce, I mean, website stuff, all that type of stuff. If you're on your own. I know I'm going to ask you questions you don't know. That I'm going to speak a language you don't know, right? I mean, look, you, sorry to interrupt, but I mean, you're spot on. You're nailing it. I mean, so part of it is the, first of all, I can't imagine training for MMA because I don't like to get hit. When I, like early in my Pop Warner career, they wanted me to be a fullback because I was big and for my age and I was fast and, uh, and I hit hard on defense. So they figured it would be great. But I closed my eyes every time I was about to receive the handoff because yeah. I was afraid to get hit. I can't imagine the MMA thing, but I will tell you one of the things that's common among entrepreneurs is that they get to the point where advice bounces off of them. And I think some of it is guy behavior. We think somehow that we're weak if we need help, as opposed to standing on the shoulders of giants, as opposed to the idea that if I have your knowledge and experience added to mine, I'm much better off than I go without it. There is no you don't get extra points or an extra gold star because you did your deal on your own. You saved 150000 in legal fees, but you end up with all the risk in your transaction and the whole thing's got nothing but earnouts and rolled equity and seller notes and contingencies such that you thought you sold your business for $25 bucks and you only got $8 million after tax and you never see any of the contingencies, but you did it on your own. But there's an element there in that the when we reach out and we ask for help in the areas where, I mean, we always have the opportunity to say, okay, 
now that I've heard what you have to offer, you're either not the right advisor or I don't need that help. I'm good. But it just makes sense. We network for everything else. We build our businesses by kind of reaching out, bringing in resources. It just makes sense to pause that stubborn instinct that makes you a successful entrepreneur, ignoring well-intentioned advice and taking the advice when you need it most. Yeah. You said something earlier, you have a theme or a motto, something about a gladiator. What was that? Yeah. Well, so this comes from one of the guys on my advisory board, Kevin Hoffberg, was the venture partner at Ulu Ventures and has done a number of impressive jobs. And early in his consulting career, he coined the phrasing that the best advisors are guru, guide, and gladiator. He never trademarked it or protected the IP. So he's had to see people write bad books using that framework, not getting it quite right. And I think it captures what we do. Look, most people that hire us as a transaction advisor think that they're paying us because we're gurus. We know more than they do about that area. And that's part of it for sure. But the guide piece, the helping them with every inflection point, using the benefit of our useful scar tissue to say, well, here's what I've seen other founders do well when faced with this set of problems or issues or opportunities. And here's what we do. Here's what we recommend. The last piece and probably the most important piece is gladiator. And I'm not talking about MMA fighting. I'm talking about, and I'm also not talking about swearing off against the other side in a deal or negotiating fees lower from an attorney. I'm talking about me fighting with current you on behalf of the future you that you've expressed to me, the guy who wants to have this outcome and this legacy, because your fears or your anger or something like that is getting in the way of that. And part of the reason that we don't make our fees at Candor Advisors purely based upon successful transactions is I don't yet know enough about any client, even when we're engaging them. And we kind of pick and choose. We're thoughtful about it. But I don't know how they're going to react at certain inflection points in the deal. And I'm going to bring this back a little bit to an earlier point you made about when you're thinking about buying a business, you advise the other side that they should probably get some advice at a right moment in time. The private equity firm I was part of never looked at a proprietary deal, meaning never looked at anything just because we'd sourced it. We only looked at deals that were represented by professional transaction advisors because we didn't want the seller to think that we were insulting them by asking questions about their financials. And we didn't want to deal with the fallout of having them not understand that many of the things you go through in due diligence are invasive and seem accusatory. But if you're the buyer, they're risk control. So there's just certain things you need to accept. And if you've got a good transaction advisor, he's going to be able to say, look, they need to see three years worth of financials. And if you haven't been audited and you haven't done a QV and they want to look at your bank racks for the last three years, that's reasonable because they want to make sure that kind of the financial statements they're looking at tie to the bank statements. So, but if you're a seller and you don't have somebody advising you, you take that as an insult to your integrity, as opposed to recognizing it for what it is by the buyer, which is just risk control. Something really cool coming up. It's called the Business Acquisition Virtual Summit, July 26th through the 28th. Join Jeremy Harbour, Roland Fraser, Carl Allen, and 20 other leaders in mergers and acquisitions. The event is the 2023 
Business Acquisition Virtual Summit. How to Exit is proud to sponsor this 100% online event packed with three full days of expert talks from the world's most recognized acquisition entrepreneurs. Register now at businessacquisitionsummit.com. Be sure to check out their option to do the upgrade to VIP virtual networking so you can meet and talk with the other participants. Don't miss out now on the M&A event of the year. That's businessacquisitionsummit.com. Yeah, I tell potential buyers all the time, like, look, if you're going, because they ask me, because they know I'm a marketing nerd, I was master's degree in marketing, all my experience is that I know how, I know to find out off-source deals or off-market deals. And I said, if you look, before you go down that path, understand, if it's off-market, you're now taking on two hats, right? And I said, well, what do you mean? I said, you're the buyer and the advisor, because they're not going to know half the term. It's, they're great. I still look for them, mainly because there's just not a lot of market for what I'm looking for. And if, if it is, it's finally combed over. But, but I still look for them. But I understand when I go into this, like, look, I'm going to have to explain to you what an LOI is, right? I'm going to explain to you why I want to see more than two months worth of your web traffic. I want to see the last 12 to 18 months of it. I want to see the last three years of your bank statements. If you've been around for three more years, the standard due diligence stuff. And I have to go and like explain to them because they do get offended. Like, you know, what, you don't trust me? I was like, no, this is a standard. Like I can show you website after website after website. Like here's a list of the standard things you're going to be asked to or for doing diligence. This is what this is called. It's me verifying that I am getting what I'm buying. But if you don't, if you can't play that mediary of handling their emotions, you really like, like your PE firm probably shouldn't be talking to people who are not represented because you're taking on more than one hat or you're going to have a lot of busted deals because deals just aren't, they're just not going to make it all the way through. I always joked around in the real estate world saying that you can't say the wrong thing to the right seller. If they really want to sell bad enough, there's nothing you can say to mess up the deal. Now, the real question is, do you want something that somebody wants out of that bad? Where's the skeletons in this closet? With real estate, you can walk through and find them, right? And business deals, you don't know about pending lawsuits and all kinds of weird stuff that could be why they're trying to fire sell it. But I'll go back to what you were saying is having advisories on both sides is critical. Like I don't do my own due diligence on, the, on these transactions. I look at the stuff. I'm gaining the eyesight of what I refer to as my own BS meter. I want to know enough about every subject inside of this. And that's one of the reasons I started the show is just to learn. But I want to know enough about every subject, including the legal documents, the law, the reps and warranties, all that stuff, what's normal, what's not normal stuff, that something can raise my radar and say, go, wait a second, the last four deals I looked at had this, why is this one different? But I don't want to do that stuff myself because I don't want to spend the 10,000 plus hours in each one of those respected fields to get the knowledge I would require to do it right. Yeah, I look, I think one of the challenges if you're a business owner or you're a professional buyer of businesses is that at a certain point, there are things that we could cobble together and do okay on our own. Like I've marked up enough um, LOIs and enough purchase agreements that, uh, you know, you could say that I do a great job at that and can substitute for the attorney on that. But I would tell you that I missed a hundred percent of the days in law school. And so I don't know if I'm marking up an LOI and you're a Utah based LLC and you're buying the assets of my California S Corp, I don't know by the time it gets to a purchase agreement, whether there's things that the different states and entity types are like how much of a difference that might make and the tax impact to me as a seller. And then by the time we get into reps and warranties, like 
I can't draft disclosure schedules. I don't necessarily, like I know what excluded and included assets are, and I know how to talk about them conceptually. But I mean, look, you've got it. It's not just legal mumbo jumbo. There is risk transfer that happens and there's proper ownership of assets that need to take place. And look, you and I decide business person to business person on the terms that will work for us, right? It's not like we're going to go down to the DMV and just fill out a form and have this stuff transferred naturally. Mm -hmm. If we're not going to have rep and warranty insurance or if we're not going to have tax insurance and we're not going to kind of go through a full-blown process, we're not going to get attorneys involved, it might work out okay. But chances are one of us is going to miss something to either or both of our detriment. And so it's just, it's critical. Look, if you spend decades building a business, it's a little bit of a bummer that you've got to sell it off of trailing 12 months or last year's financials when you spent decades building it. But I would tell you, if the last 12 months worth of financials don't represent the best 12 months you've had, you might want to revisit whether it's the right time to sell it or not. And that's just the way it's done. And similarly, moving from an IOI to an LOI to an executed LOI to a stock purchase agreement or asset purchase agreement and going through disclosure schedules and kind of nailing down all the pieces. Hey, look, it costs a lot, but there's a reason. There's a reason. That's the way you need to do it. <laughs> what do you say to business owners that I've kind of come across a couple of businesses right now where they transferred from generation to generation. They're on the second or third generation. And to be honest, the books have never been right. They just operate based on what they need to get by to get their taxes right every year. And everything else is kind of done on maybe they're in QuickBooks now, but you know, only in the last four years, everything before that has been done on those green tablets, right? I actually walked into company and I was like, I don't see any records and financials past three years old. And I, they pointed at these file cabinets and they had row after row after row after row of those big green accounting notebooks. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I do. I do. And I'll tell you that the advice is different. If I'm talking to a seller, all of our clients are selling founders. We get contacted by private equity firms and even wealthy individuals that want our help in buying businesses. And when we talk about buyers being full-time predators, that doesn't mean that they're not nice people. And that doesn't mean that they're, they don't love their kids and their dog and all that other stuff. We're just talking about kind of evening things out. And we picked a side, if you will. But look, as, as a former partner of a private equity firm, I can tell you that some of the things that kind of these multi-generational kind of chewing gum and bailing wire businesses do will hurt them in a sale. Because if I'm a buyer and I see that you don't have organized financials, then I am definitely going to expect a discount. I'm going to take a half, a full, a turn and a half off the multiple because I can't really figure out the transferable economics of your business because your financials are just a mess from year to year, right? Similarly, if you've got a divorced or divorcing couple who founded or built the business, well, that's an exploitable thing if I'm a buyer because it's a bad model for governance for a divorced or divorcing couple to continue to try and run a business. It will eventually have problems, even if it's just lower revenue and profits and maybe it'll just fall apart. Well, if I'm a buyer, I'm looking for dynamics like that because, look, I'm a value buyer in anything else I do. Once I decided on the car I wanted, I didn't want to pay the top of the market to get it. I wanted to get the best deal possible. So if I'm a buyer and you as the seller want eight times 
and I think I can only either swing or I think your business is really worth six times and I'm going to put three turns of leverage on it. And so if I pay above six times, it's not going to work in my financial model. I'm not going to be able to produce the return I or my LPs need. Well, I have to do something to get you from eight to six times to be able to buy your business. And I'm not insulting you. I'm not trying to steal your business from you. I want your business. It just doesn't work in my financial model. It's certainly now at current cost of debt at that higher multiple. So the sides coming at it for different reasons is not because you know, one's bad, one's good. One loves the business. The other one is indifferent to the business. It's more like, like they're coming at it from different directions with different stakeholders. One of the first questions I ask when I'm getting to know people is like, we talk about why they're selling, but it's like, what do you want to get out of the transaction? And I'm open for that conversation to be peace of mind and all the different things. But most of the time, what comes out is a number, right? When I ask somebody, what do you want to get out of the transaction? What are you looking to get out of selling your business? 1.2 million. Like, cool. Let's see how we can get you there. That's my response every single time. It's cool. Let's see how we can get you there. It's because I don't know enough about their business at this stage and know whether or not they're already there or not there. And to be honest, more often than not, the way to get there is like, look, you need to go find yourself a team, an advisor. You're going to have to grow this a little bit. Yeah. 1.2 million is possible. But you're going to have to double your recurring revenue, right? Yeah. You just, the industry multiples are X and you're at, you're at two X where, you know, not two X of multiple, but you're two times what the industry is asking for. <laughs> Absolutely. That, I mean, look, and that makes you a thoughtful buyer. One of the things that's been happening, which I think is good in the sense that because so many boomers and Gen Xers have been entrepreneurial and they're getting ready to exit either for retirement or because they want to do something different. It's great that there are so many independent sponsors, search funds, family offices that want to buy businesses. But it's also, if you're a seller, it just emphasizes the idea that, look, financial people come up with ways to make sure that they look like the solution to every problem. And so the numbers of pings we get from founder-friendly buyout firms, or we want to find a seller who really wants to de-risk right now and get the second bite of the apple down the road where we bring in our capital, our strategic guidance, our operating expertise to build the business together to another outcome. I mean, look, there aren't too many public market assets, and I don't want to get into NFTs and cannabis and crypto and all that. There are not too many public market assets that are going to get you north of high single digit returns over the next call it 10, 20 years, right? So the best way to generate 15, 20, 25% or more on your money is to find a business that's probably a lifestyle business or a big lifestyle business, put together the right structure and buy that business. It's a great way to generate a return. And if you're trying to create the return for limited partners or stakeholders that are backing you, the best way to make the highest return is to buy it cheaply. Oh, right. definitely. Right. So there is a, there's a good tension that's growing here. I mean, the idea that there are some estimates are that there are as much as 2 trillion in private equity, private debt and venture capital out there that's committed and uninvested, that dry powder. That's fantastic news for entrepreneurs thinking about selling, because then if you add the buying power of all the strategics, mm-hmm. that's great. That means that there's plenty of money out there. It also means that you don't, marry the first girl you kiss. 
it's useful to, to sort of say, okay, what do I want to really do? If last Friday you left the business and said, oh my God, honey, I don't know how much longer I can do this. This one's got an HR issue and that one wants to work remotely. This one wants to work back at the office. And our biggest supplier is trying to grind us on price. And our biggest customer isn't happy with the speed of our fixing problems. I don't know how much longer I can do this. If your decision after all that and a little bit more introspection is, I think it's about time I sell. I think I've lost my passion for running this company. Well, then don't sell to a private equity firm or in some structure because they will say to you, what do you really want to do, Ron? And of course, the right answer is whatever is best for the business. And they want you to stay involved in the business, right? That's not the right outcome, even though that might shut off a source of potential capital or one of your exit paths, at least inwardly and with your closest advisors, you've got to be honest about that, right? Because then as the path gets narrower, the best outcome gets more obvious. And as long as you, you can have anything you want, but you can't have everything you want. You just got to go through the deletion of the distracting things. Become an essentialist to get to the right outcome. Yeah. I like the the approach of when I look at these, and I haven't done anything in the last few months because I've got we moved here probably in the last six or eight months. haven't made any offers. I'm looking out there. But when I'm actively out there talking to business owners and stuff, the thing I like to do inside of the realm, especially I'm looking at small projects too, these are cash flowing blogs and stuff. A lot of them are six figures, not even up into the second. The offer is so not even up into the seven figures yet. But I'm looking to create a little portfolio of stuff I can grow, and I'm still learning the space. I might buy something bigger, like I own a pest control company and stuff like that. That would be a much larger purchase if I bought another one in Oklahoma to marry up to mine. That said, my favorite thing to do is like, like I said, what are you trying to get to? Let's see how we get you there. But the offers I typically make are, it's an LOI, but it has like three different things. Like, look, I know you want to get the X right now. I can offer Y right here. I can offer half of what you want right this very second when I can arrange it, we can get the investors pulled together. We can get you taken care of, but it's half where you want to be. If you fix X, Y, and Z in my offer in this operating, like if you get a new operator in there, you fix your accounting, this is done. Your revenue hits this number. My offer still stands, but I can all increase the offer price to, to to a little bit more and then like you know contact me when you're at where you want and if i you know where you want to be when you've got all, everything fixed if that's six yeah. months a year down the road i'm probably still i'm only 51 i'll probably still be buying when you get there contact me i'd love to you, you built something incredible i'd like to see you get there i've even i'm very honest though a lot of times i they've built something incredible and i want to look at it again i tell them it's like when you're ready go find yourself an advisor get this ready when you're ready don't think you burned a bridge with me i can't get you where you want to be but i'd love to have it if you get there so that's a really heads up way to approach it because yeah. what is behind that, what's not said is that, look, I will buy the business from you now. I just can't buy the business from you at the number you want. But if you find that continuing to operate the business is either giving you more stress or less joy or less purpose than you want, I'm here. I'm a buyer. I'm just not a buyer at your price. So I'm going to be passionate about my price discipline not about your business until I own it. And I think as a seller, like when a buyer gives you that kind of heads up, like a lot of times we get contacted when somebody's been watching our videos for, we hear like, I've been watching your videos for a year and I didn't give up too much too soon. 
And I didn't provide them with information until we had an NDA, but now we've got an indication of interest and they want to go exclusive. And here's the list of things they've asked for before they put together an LOI, right? We get contacted like that a lot. And one, it's neat to know that the videos are getting spread enough. People are visiting the website that they're going to the insights section of our website and like learning about the M&A business through stuff that is in my head. And it's not valuable unless I get it out there anyway. And we give it away for free. The what we give away, the how we charge for. But in those cases, many times I will say, like, let's send an email to your buyer and say, Ron, I'm intrigued by our conversation last week, and I'd love to continue the discussion. I've never done this before, so I'm copying the transaction advisor I've hired, Kirk Mitchie, Candor Advisors. You're going to go to my website. You're going to look me up. You're going to see what my deal is, right? He'd love to jump on the phone and talk about your request list and see what's really necessary for you to get to a letter of intent. Okay, well, there's going to be three different kind of responses to that. One will be hostile. The hostile one means we're chasing away a bad buyer. You don't really need to retain candor advisor. Right. Being me on that email is probably, you won't even have to pay our first month's fee because this person yeah. will respond hostily. They will reveal who they are and we won't need to go into exclusivity. We'll just keep going. Plan A was running the business. We're going to continue with plan A. The second kind of response is sort of neutral. It's professional, but you can tell that they're not thrilled that there's a transaction advisor involved. So they're going to go at least one or two more rounds of this before they might bail out. Well, that's great. We may or may not need to be retained or we may only be, need to be retained for our minimum contract. And we might even forego that if in the first call with the potential buyer, things devolve pretty quickly and we find out that there's a bad fit. The third response, and quite frankly, the right response to the buyer is fantastic. That's a great idea, Ron. Kirk. Nice to meet you. Look forward to jumping on a call. When are you available? If you're a legit buyer, that's always the right response, whether you like the fact that there's a transaction advisor inserted and it changes your trajectory or not, because you're absolutely going to lose the relationship with that selling founder if you re react hostily. And so your best chance of buying the business is to be able to proceed forward and see what's on my mind, right? Right. And from the buyer's perspective, I'll tell you, I've never reacted hostile to that. It's happened for somebody we were talking and they're like, okay, because I encourage it anyway. At some point, you probably got to get an advisor because you, you really don't know. Like I've only been doing this. I'm just all honest. Like, hey, this is kind of the blind leading blind, right? I've only been in this space for two years. I've acquired some small stuff, but nothing really big. I'm going to bring an advisor and I've got, I've got a bunch of, I've interviewed over 150 people at this stage. I've got people I can call to ask questions, right? Who do you have that you can call and ask questions when you don't understand I'm something I'm talking to you about and you want a third party answer, right? I can respect that the answer shouldn't always come from me. So inside of that conversation, I'll tell you that I've never responded hostile for one, a couple of different times because I think in, the buyer barely had a little bit of cold. I mean, the seller was kind of cold feeded to start with when we talked because these are cold outreaches I'm usually reaching out to. Like, are they even motivated to sell at this point? Like they're talking to an advisor, they're maybe talking to one, or is this just a, another thing like, hey, just talk to this guy. And if he finally passes you, you get past all his stuff, I may still sell to you. And once I start talking to you, I want to know, one of the first things that I'm going to ask you is, what do you think the seller 
game plan is here. Is he really going to sell to me? If we go through all this work, if you and I put all this time together and he's paying you, and that's another thing I ask every time, are you commission only or do you get a monthly retainer? And I was like, why is that important? Well, if you get paid monthly, then I understand that he may or may not close with me at the other end, but he's a lot more likely to be motivated if he's cutting you a check every month to get this to the other end, if he's only having to pay a success fee. If he doesn't have to pay you unless we both win, you and I, then there's a good chance he's not really considering selling. He's just wanting to see how high you can get my number up to. I don't have time for that game. So I do have a bit of a pushback when I hear somebody's bringing in an advisor because it, it changes my mindset as, are they truly motivated? Do they want to get to the other end of this? Or are they just trying to play the auction game, get my number up as high as possible? And then go, yeah, you never hit my number. Yeah, that's smart. That's really smart. I'll tell you, I probably should put in the provisor that like we generally work on pretty big transactions. Yeah. So it's reasonable that the buyer who's usually going to be a strategic, a company that's in the same business, looking for a geography or an adjacency or a new product or an acquire. We're usually working on pretty big transactions. So the buyer should reasonably expect that an investment banker or something is going to be hired at some point along the way. Smaller transactions, a lot of times the business broker or investment banker is going to muddy the waters. If one entrepreneur is buying the business of another entrepreneur, then probably all that's really necessary is the right attorneys get involved. And I agree with everything you said about the dynamics of the kind of the fees and the success fees and all that. And the other thing too, is that what generally happens is that usually the most hostile responses are from a slightly larger competitor or from an independent sponsor, like big private equity firms will say, Hey, let's jump on a call and let's see what your client's thoughts are about valuation. Like they don't want to waste outside resource money or time working on a deal that's not going to fit. I got a client kind of off and on client. Each time he grows to a new level, he gets a little bit more outreach. He retains us and I engage with the potential buyers and they find out what his price expectation is and they eventually go away because he has the rare software business that's got 50% net margins. So most software businesses sell at a multiple of revenue. Well, his revenue is like four and a half million bucks. His net is two and a quarter. And so like when you have a net of two and a quarter and you're in a California pass-through entity, you could be paying yourself over a million bucks a year yeah. where you're not going to sell at two or three times your revenue because your net after tax will not reproduce that million, million and a half a year that you can pay yourself, right? So what the buyers are typically saying is, look, you're looking for a non-market deal on we're willing to do a heads up market deal, but your guys' expectations are too high. And when I say they are, here's the math on his side. And then they say, yeah, that, that makes sense. I don't think I'd sell the business either. And so in that case, nobody's mad, right? But, you know, I think it, it kind of comes down to if you as a capital provider or a buyer we're looking at the right size deal with the right seller chemistry. And you're really clear on what you're looking for, size, sector, seller dynamics. Then you will help somebody get to the right transaction for them. As long as they won't be as clear as you, but you'll help them to right. get to, hey, look, this is the kind of deal I can do. And usually if there's an advisor, whether it's us or somebody else who says, so listen, Ron, we're happy to provide you with following information to get you to an LOI and feel free to make the LOI a range with a whole lot of qualifiers around what you need to see to validate this number to be in that range. 
feel free to do that because we know you as a buyer don't want to develop a reputation as a guy who looks to retrade things. So mm -hmm. we want to give you the latitude to give us like a range. Mm -hmm. We don't expect anybody to pay top of market, throw an LOI out, at especially not in, in an environment where it's tougher to finance deals if you're a financial buyer because interest rates have doubled and tripled. So you mentioned videos, you mentioned the ebook and stuff. Where do people find these resources? And let's, let's talk about what resources you have available for people to get started in knowing you and your firm. Yeah. So we're at candor-advisors.com. That's candor-advisors.com. The insights section of my website has 70 or 80 videos on various topics. Most of the things that you're going to run into as a buyer or a seller. At some point, I think if you hover for 10 seconds, it's going to ask you to sign up. What that means is you get a copy of the six secrets of selling your business. That's an ebook that we shoot right out to you in a PDF. And then you'll get kind of a heads up when we're doing anything special promotionally. We send out a weekly email newsletter that highlights a few things. We'll certainly publicize any recent deals that we've worked on. And we are about two months away from launching a more educational platform that'll be my goal is not to scale our business so that there are seven more Kirks, but you know, because I, I want leverage, but not necessarily a bigger firm. The way we can help more people is more of an educational platform. So we're going to do curriculum that covers six months. Every other week, we'll meet for 60 to 90 minutes and go through one of 12 factors that are pretty important to get to, whether you're selling in six months or five years. So we're going to roll that out pretty soon. And if you're already signed up for Candor Advisor stuff, you're going to get that. And there's a, look, there's a call to action button on the website that says, talk to Kirk. That came actually from one of the M&A attorneys who referred me into that life science transaction I was talking about. The client had a really heads up market-based engagement agreement in front of them from an investment bank. And he said, this might be the right investment bank for you, but before you sign it, you should talk to Kirk first. And uh, talk to Kirk first didn't fit on the button. So just talk to Kirk is on the button. Okay. <laughs> so that was our call to action. Yeah. It brings up a form that you can send me a note that says, I'm Ron, here's what I'm interested in. And would you please contact me at the following email address or phone number? Now, are you active on social media, LinkedIn or anything like that? I am. Candor Advisors and Kirk Mitchie both have feeds on LinkedIn. We post weekly. We post a new video weekly. And then we are also on Instagram and we have a Facebook page. I couldn't tell you necessarily how to get there, which would be Candor Advisors if you search it. Yeah. So we're in a few different spots. And chances are, if you're an entrepreneur, you know, that does more than five to 10 million a year in revenue and your business is licensed and registered somewhere, you're probably getting our emails or you're sending us to spam, but chances are you're getting our stuff. Uh, that's cool. One last thing real quick. If somebody can only remember two or three things from the show today, what would you want them to walk away with? Yeah. So focus on that. Why? Make sure you understand whether it's retiring or getting rid of the stress or funding your next adventure that you're clear on why you want to sell or have a capital event. I would focus your business always on purpose over profit, not because I think that you need to serve some social good, but just you need a compass for those inflection points. 
And then the last piece is if you get reached out to by a financial sponsor or strategic buyer, just don't give up too much too soon. Don't give away your leverage because um, they, they're not bad people, but they're going to ask for as much as they can possibly get. And it might not be in your interest to provide them with everything they're asking. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I appreciate having you on the show today. And if you got anything else to add? No, just thank you. Really, really enjoyed talking to you, Ron, and, and love what you do. Thanks. Keep awesome. it up. And we'll call that a show. Hey, it's your host, Ronald Skelton. I want to thank you personally for watching the show today and invite you to call our new hotline, 918-641-4150. That's 918-641-4150. Call us and tell us about our show. Ask questions, uh, suggest a guest, or even tell me about a business you have for sale, and we'll reach back out to you. Again, that number is 918-641-4150. Call our hotline and leave us some information. Thank you. I want to announce our new channel partners, the ITX Marketplace. Since 1998, ITX has created $5 billion in value by selling more than 225 IT businesses in 20 countries. ITX works exclusively with IT-enabled businesses generating between $5 million and $30 million who are ready to be sold and M&A decision makers who are ready to buy. For over 25 years, ITX has developed industry knowledge that helps determine whether a seller is a good fit for their buyers before making the match. ITX Mergers and Acquisition Marketplace, we have partnered with, has a proprietary database of 50,000-plus global buyers seeking IT service firms, managed service providers, Microsoft service providers, software-as-a-service platforms, and channel partners with Microsoft, Oracle, ServiceNow, and, and, and the Salesforce space. If you have an IT-enabled business, you're ready to sell, I want you to visit the IT exchangenet.com slash marketplace how to exit that link will be in the show notes visit them now